the real question is, how should Christians mm. comport themselves in mm. politics? What, mm-hmm. how would they distinguish themselves uh, and reflect their faith in how they participate? That's the question I think we need to pay mm-hmm. a lot more attention to, and we've been overlooking. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthardt. I'm part of the Wellspring team. At Wellspring and Soul Care, we deeply desire to see pastors and leaders serve God, the church, and others from a well-tended inner life. We know the pressures of life and ministry these days are enormous, and so we want to help people not just survive, but actually thrive. You know, recent Barna data indicates that Lots of pastors are considering leaving full-time ministry. The three top issues they name are stress, isolation, and division. And it's that third one we want to lean into in today's podcast, division. I think all of us have been troubled and saddened by the deep divisions in our nation and in our churches especially. And it's into that space we want this podcast to speak. To do this, we've called on one of our own Soul Care alumni, who's what we call a subject matter expert. Daniel Stid, who has served on Wellspring's board, he was previously the program director of U.S. Democracy at the William and Flora Hewitt Foundation. He was previously a partner at the Bridgespan Group, a nonprofit consultancy. He began his career as a political scientist. He taught at Wabash College, served as a congressional fellow on the staff of the House Majority Leader. He is an author, a graduate of Hope College, and holds a master's in philosophy in politics from Oxford, a doctorate in government from Harvard University. I think you could say he's well qualified to speak about politics and these really two key questions. One, how did we get here? How did we get to this place of of deep polarization and division that is, is grieving us all? How did we get here? And second, what is a way forward? What is a a more productive, more God-honoring, more Jesus way forward in our churches, in our lives, in our communities? In 1 Chronicles, there's a verse that says that the people of Issachar, this tribe in in Israel, they, they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We want to be people that understand the times we're living in, but then know what's a good and healthy and God-honoring way forward. Enjoy the conversation with Daniel Stitt. Daniel Stitt, thank you so much for taking some time to sit down and talk with us today about uh, about matters that actually concern us all and actually concern many of us very deeply. And so, again, thanks for that. Tell us a little bit about your own background. How did you get involved in doing the kind of work you've been doing? And maybe you could even describe a little bit more of your recent particular work in the uh, political field. Sure. Well, Richard, first of all, thank you uh, for inviting me. It's great to be here. I'm a strong believer in the work that you're doing here at, at Wellspring and with Soul Care. So happy to uh, uh, happy to participate. And um, the immediate prompt for this discussion, as you know, was I recently joined a retreat that you helped organize with yeah. a number of, of Christian pastors and lay leaders, and uh, I was just struck in listening to people and the burdens that uh, these folks uh, carry as they, they, they pursue their vocations of how much of a burden the polarization 
and the just the the partisanship which is spilling over in so many domains of our, of our lives these days was really uh, uh, bearing down on them and their congregations in Absolutely. ways that were really troubling, and yes, and that uh, uh, you know that led led me to think, wow, there really is a, a challenge here. I mean, kind of going back, there's two or three things I bring to this conversation. One is I'm a I'm a political scientist by training, uh, you know, uh, have a PhD, taught, wrote a book for uh, on the subject of political parties and presidents and Congress and how they work together. I was a staffer in uh, the office of the House Majority Leader uh, hmm. back in the 1990s, and most recently, um, I have uh, just just stepped down from a fixed uh, eight-year term appointment at the Hewlett Foundation, which is a philanthropy based here in Menlo Park, California, where I directed our our grant making and support of uh, of, of U.S. democracy. So, hmm. uh, starting in 2013 and 2014, the foundation realized uh, you know, all of our programs, whether it's trying to improve the flow of aid to the developing world or to um, uh, reform our schools to improve teaching and learning, presumes we have a more or less functioning democratic process. And insofar right. as we don't have that, we're gonna be stymied on these other fronts. So I've, mm. I've over the past uh, eight years, have led uh, the, the distribution of about 160 million uh, in charitable contributions to support um, nonprofit groups, uh, charitable organizations working to strengthen our democracy. And so that's given me a real uh, bird's eye view in all this. Uh, you know, on a personal note, um, there's a couple of vectors. One is uh, I grew up uh, in rural Michigan on a family farm that had been in my family for, remains in my family now for several generations. And now what is today would be described as red America. I, I mm. don't like those labels because mm -hmm. I think they, they cloud more than they reveal. Um, mm. uh, but, you know, I have loved ones and family members, many of whom uh, supported uh, former President Trump uh, that, that I, you know, kind of know and trust and in deep relationship with. Um, and then for the past 15 years of my life, I've lived and worked in the heart of Silicon Valley, which is mm -hmm. the, you know, again, using these problematic labels, we apply the, the deepest blue of the, of the blue <laughs> parts of the country. And, mm. and the one thing I just have taken away from these, and similarly have people and family and friends that I am in deep relationship with, and I'm, I'm just struck by how much more we have in common mm. across these, uh, these uh, you know, apparently or seemingly separate types of places and regions and political dispositions in our country. And, and I think there's a what I might call the polarization industrial complex that is <laughs> that work seeking to divide us and prevent us from seeing uh, that which we have in common. So I, I'm kind of both professionally but personally am invested in um, trying to, to help sort this out. And I, and I actually think, and we'll, I know we'll talk more about solutions in the back half of the congregation, but as a believer myself and as someone who's chaired a church board and who's been on the board of Wellspring and knows the the challenges and difficulties that pastors are facing in leading congregations. I appreciate how hard this is for them to sort mm -hmm. through. And also, I, I think there's a number of concrete and practical steps they can take to uh, help they and their flocks kind of navigate them and their flocks navigate through all of this. And so we look forward to brainstorming with you. About yeah, that. wow. And I, I know that as I've talked to uh, having been a pastor myself for many years, and then the last couple of years in particular, talking to pastors, faith leaders, and just people in general, is that it's it has been so distressing and um, and kind of alarming. I guess the the level of what 
seems to be the level of uh, a partisanship, more than that, polarization is a term that gets used a lot, and and the rancor and the level of uh, vitriol that seems to emerge and the, and the fracturing that seems to happen mm-hmm. in churches and families and relationships. And, and so I'm so grateful that because this isn't a back burner issue, this yeah. is a front and center issue yeah, for sure. many of us. And, and it's uh, it, part and parcel of not only our personal lives and our family lives, but, but our church lives as well. And so we, we are really hoping and praying, and that's why I'm so grateful for this conversation, that you can help us make sense of uh, two things. One is like kind of how did we get here? Uh, because it, it seems to me, in my very limited vantage point, it's like this felt like it came not quite out of nowhere, but suddenly it felt like it came pretty fast and very strong. And so kind of how do we get here? And then, as you said, we'll kind of then uh, pivot to then, okay, then if this is where we are and maybe a more accurate picture of where we really are, and then what are some practical ways we can engage um, as opposed to what I often feel like doing, which is disengaging. And um, so what, what can we do there? So, so that's where we'll, we'll kind of start with this question of, of how did we get here? And again, uh, maybe my perspective is is off base here, so I'm really eager sure, to have that sure. sh- challenge. But it seemed to me that the 2016 election, in particular, with uh, with Donald Trump, and this is not making any comment about him as a candidate or anything, but just that there seemed to be a great deal more than I recall from previous presidential elections of vitriol and. Uh, in in lots of directions, yes. Not among not just among sure. candidates, but among people that were talking about these candidates and the ways they were talking sure. about it. Is that accurate? sure? No, it's a good it's a good question. And Richard, for the purpose of this conversation, and generally, I find this a good rule of thumb. I'm presuming that I'm speaking to people, some of whom would have supported former President sure. Trump, some of whom would have uh, supported candidates from the other party. And, sure. And um, so, uh, and so, I, I say this with in, with that spirit, which um, is that as uh, uh, you know, I think the former president has a gift for really directing the conversation back towards him and what he stands for, whether you are for him or opposed to him. But I would suggest that uh, that that Donald Trump and the movement and the phenomena uh, that he really catalyzed, starting in 2016 is much more a, a symptom rather than a cause of some deeper-seated fissures in our society hmm. that to really tease out the roots, you'd have to go back to the 1960s. And so I won't, hmm. I won't, won't give the full uh, political science lecture here, but just to capture the extent to which we've changed and, and made progress on some fronts and not so much on other fronts, um, you know, there's some, there's some really good survey data that, that, you know, people asking essentially the same questions or recurring questions over periods of time that give us a feel for the extent where and how we're othering other people. And mm. so when social psychologists and, and survey experts want to get a feel for whether you as the respondent don't like another group, they don't say, do you like this other group or not? Because you're going to give them the answer that they, they are looking for, but there's kind of an indirect way of coming at that, which is how would you feel if your uh, son or daughter were to marry someone mm. from this other group to mm. kind of almost mm-hmm. like get a little bit of distance from you? And what's really interesting and in that, you know, uh, you know, the good news is that, that for all of the work we have yet to do with respect to racial reconciliation, there's been tremendous um, 
progress. So when pollsters uh, asked people that the question on racial lines, asking people, would you be unhappy if your son or daughter married someone from a different racial group? Right. Starting in the 1960s, um, uh, you know, uh, huge majorities, like 80, 90 percent of respondents, both among uh, African-American and white Americans would say, yes, that would make me unhappy. Hmm. And the good news is, is that over time that that has dropped precipitously. So now, you know, le- fewer than one in 20 uh, mm. uh, or few, no, fewer than one in five. I think it's a little under 20 percent would say they would be. So you've gone from 90 percent saying they would be to under 20 percent. And that's okay. real progress. And we yeah. also know from the the dramatic increase in intermarriage rates that that's also reflected in behavior. Now, what's also interesting is that back in 1960, social psychologists put that same question to people with respect to party. Would you be upset if your son or daughter mm. would marry someone from the other party? And at the time, it was, you know, partisanship was such a limited uh, aspect of the vast majority of people's identity. It was almost like a nonsensical question. And only like one out of 20 said, oh, yes, that would upset me back mm. in the 1960s if if I'm a Republican and my daughter married someone from another party. But if you fast forward to today, right. our attitudes towards partisan intermarriage, if you will, yeah. you know, are, are increasingly looking like attitudes towards racial intermarriage wow. back in the 1960s. So you've seen a reverse mm. now. Healthy majorities of both parties say, oh, yes, that would make me unhappy. And so I think that shows the extent to which partisanship has become a really profound identity for mm. more and more Americans. And there's... Uh, uh, you know, two or three th- junctures I would point to that have led to that occurring. One is, you know, going back, uh, you know, if, if, if you go back into the, that period of the 1960s, if I were to tell you, um, for example, a member of a Congress was liberal or conservative, that would have given you very little information to place that person into a Republican or a Democratic Party because hmm. there were a whole bunch of conservative Democrats and a whole bunch of liberal and progressive Republicans. And and also the, on, on all these hot button issues with respect to uh, immigration and abortion and these things that we see now as culturally very salient, the parties weren't strictly divided in the way that they mm. have become. But of mm. course now, if I tell you someone is a liberal or a progressive or a conservative or libertarian, that gives you basically all you need to know to place them in a party. So our mm. our parties have sorted themselves out so that they are much more coherent internally and um, divergent externally. And that's a process that really commenced in the late 60s and 70s, and by the 1990s have uh, you know, really uh, taken hold. So that, that's a process that goes back several decades, which then gives rise to this, this sense of it's us versus them in our politics. I think there also were um, a set of uh, the so-called culture wars and the increasing um, uh, irresponsibility of rhetoric on the part of our political leaders uh, in terms of how they describe the other party. So, if mm. you, you know, again, in the 1960s, the vast majority of leaders um, uh, would have been veterans of World War II, would have come through the Depression. There was kind of a, a social mixing bowl mm-hmm. that, that uh, there was also a Cold War occurring where there was a certain chastening versus how people could talk about the other side uh, relative to uh, perceived foreign enemies that really disciplined our speech and made it more moderate mm-hmm. by the end of the of the you know the last century you know in the 1990s all bets were off and more and more people came to 
describe the other party not just as wrong or misguided, but as morally wrong and even evil. Um, right. And uh, to be really clear, I don't want to suggest, as those data around the racial um, othering that was occurring in the 1960s point to, it's not like that was a golden era where our system worked better. It worked better for, in some respects, but for the African Americans who were denied the franchise in the right. Jim Crow South, it didn't. You know, so it's it's mm-hmm. not like that was a golden era. But but it, broadly speaking, it was much less polarized than we experience um, today. That's really interesting. Um, and it, I mean, it's not, it sounds strange to say, it's not like a partisanship is the new racism, but there's a version of what you're describing in that, that there's, a, like you said, the othering that has become, it, 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 I guess one of the things that strikes me is that we have short memories. In other words, what you, the 60s, I mean, depending on your time perspective, wasn't that terribly long ago, and yet there's been tr- pretty dramatic shifts culturally then in how we even uh, talk about these kinds of things in the in the public space. Yeah, so there has been a tremendous uh, demise in the um, sense of ret- reciprocity and mutual respect in the public sphere, and you know that's due to things outside of politics. You know, when when you and I not to date us here, but when you and I were kids, you know. You know, every night at 6.30, we'd watch Walter Cronkite or John mm-hmm. Chancellor or David Brinkley. And mm-hmm. there was kind of a, a centrist, moderate curation of what mm. was news. And, and, and it spoke in a moderate voice that kind of reinforced the central tendencies. Mm. And a lot of times people will say, well, with the rise of talk radio and, and um, uh, you know, uh, Fox News or MSNBC, people are much more migrating into more politically charged uh, mm-hmm. media. But in fact, the real problem is, uh, or the real development was more, uh, one of my favorite networks, ESPN, uh, that hmm. what happened in starting in the, with the rise of cable television in the 1980s um, is you had a plethora of options. So hmm. You know, in our household, we had three channels. So if you wanted, if you were watching TV at six thirty at night, you were watching one of the national news shows. Right. Now, you've got two hundred and fifty-seven channels, as Bruce Springsteen would say. Right. And you could watch. You know, so m- people are much less apt to be tracking public affairs now than they would would have been back in that era. And then there's, I think, also a demise of a lot of the local journalism and reporting mm-hmm. that also tends to to. Uh, it kind of serve as a moderating force. So anyway, so mm. all of that, I think, you know, is a reinforcement for the the vitriol in our system. Then, of course, when you get into the rise of of uh, social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or other things mm. where you are much more apt to be saying and doing things to others that you would never dream of saying if you were uh, meeting them in the local coffee shop, but mm-hmm. you feel a total liberty to... Uh, turn your phasers up to maximum power <laughs> and go after the other side. So, again, it's not any one factor. It's all of them. But going back to your original question, fast forward to 2016. And, and, and there, there, I, let me just back up for one second. There's one other uh, shift that was occurring in our – that is, I think, really important as an underlying factor in the, the rise of the, the vitriol in the sense that politics is zero-sum is for the three or four decades after World War II, our economy was growing in leaps and bounds, hmm. uh, and the working class, the, the, the portion of the economy that was being, you know, kind of going to uh, working class Americans, 
um, was steadily increasing. So our society was becoming more egalitarian. Mm. The pie was growing. It was bigger. And mm. it was possible for everyone to believe that uh, you know, their children would have better lives and economic prospects than they did. And then when you combine that with the enfranchisement of African-Americans in the 60s, it's like, wow, we're finally opening up and becoming a fully egalitarian society. But of course, mm. with some of the economic dislocations that set in in the 1970s, and certainly by the time you get to the 2000s and the Great Recession of 2008, uh, prospects for many people and regions had become undeniably bleaker. And so mm -hmm. for many Americans, it was no longer uh, uh, a sure thing that their children would live better lives than they had. And so there was kind mm. of a, you know, when the pie is growing, it's easier to overlook differences when the pie is shrinking and you aren't sure whether your region or mm -hmm. your family or you yourself are going to get your fair share. It tends to make us look uh, uh, at uh, others more as competitors than fellow mm. citizens. That's so helpful. It just sounds like you're describing too, as I hear, um, that there was in the in the fifth post post World War II, there was a uh, in general sense. Let's say aside from let's say the Cold War yeah. and some of those things, a general spirit of more optimism. Yes, more the uh, the attainability of some version of the American dream. Yeah. I don't even know where that phrase even, maybe you would even know, but yeah. with the phrase, the American dream yeah. and, and whatever that means, it, it seems to me some version of upward uh, yes. social and financial mobility. Yes. And there was on, on multiple dimensions of life prospects of our, it was the least polarized time for us. And there's a great book, which we can drop a note into the link called The Upswing by a social scientist, Robert Putnam, mm. uh, and, uh, and, uh, and one of his co-authors, Shalene Romney Garrett, which really highlights the extent to which for you know, and, and one of the things that's sort of hopeful and optimistic about that is they know at the outset of the of the twentieth century, back in the nineteen hundred, you know, the early nineteen hundreds and nineteen teens, there were a lot of similar problems to what we're seeing now. I.e., the country was very polarized. Mm. There was a gr growing sense of that we lived in a plutocracy that working people didn't have a fair share. There was you know strong uh, uh, you know kind of patterns of othering our politics. And, and really that kind of carried through the, the Great Depression years. But what they tr trace is that, and the, the reason they give their book the upswing is that starting in the, in the 1930s, there was a set of policies and social and cultural developments that led f from a shift from a, from a me to a we in our culture. And mm. they know the, the, the equality was spread more broadly, uh, political politics became more open, there was less polarization. And what they show is that in the 20th century, we were able to go into an upswing. And so that, you know, jumping ahead to thinking about solutions, they suggest that we need to think about, uh, you know, what, what we could do to recreate that turn that occurred at the start of the 20th century. One of the really interesting things with a lot of the, the, the emphasis and, and reform efforts that were led at that juncture, earlier juncture in the progressive era, were born of people... Uh, 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 working out of a spirit of, of a religious conviction, and and so that, you know, I think I think there is a role mm. if we can get past the difficulties for for churches and and and, and lay leaders and pastors to play an equally uh, ameliorative role. What has been the role of faith or faith, the churches, faith institutions, in 
either um, contributing to that polarization or or uh, fighting against it. What's what's maybe in broad terms? Can you speak to that? Sure, and it it, it you know I, I think it really varies. I mm-hmm. think that um, you know when when most Americans think of of when they hear of the role of religious groups, in particular Christians in politics, they tend to zero in on um, uh, the more conservative, evangelical, typically white Christians in mm-hmm. the southern part of the United States. And they certainly have been a very strong cultural force. And this goes back to the Reagan era and Jerry Falwell and the rise of the... Of the of moral the, majority. The, what they called the moral majority. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think this really overlooks the complexity mm. of, of, of religious folk and Christians in particular in American politics. You know, for example, it's... Uh, uh, you know the many of the um, uh, uh, folks in the African American mm-hmm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. church and the Latino uh, uh, churches uh, who, who may be currently more inclined to uh, vote with, and especially the case with African Americans, to participate uh, in politics as Democrats. You know they are also Christians involved mm-hmm. in politics, uh, mm-hmm. although we we tend to not take that into account. So you know you know. Near as we can tell, and the data is shifting on this, and there are these general trends towards secularization, I think it's fair to say that uh, certainly a majority of the Republican Party, but also, uh, if not a majority, very close to it in the Democratic Party and among independents, are all Christians of different stripes and flavors. Mm. And so we, we shouldn't assume simply that Christian and politics are Christians and politics are represented on the right by the Republican Party. It's a really, it, you know, the, the, the Christians and politics are diverse as Christians are in all the Churches, I think there's been a couple of of um, uh, negative developments, and, and let me let me step back by saying the uh, there is a I think a really important um, uh, synergy or connection between uh, uh, Christianity, speaking of our own faith tradition, and and democracy as a form of government. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in World War II, the great uh, theologian uh, uh, of mid-century, mid-20th century America, Reinhold Niebuhr, at one point, I don't have the quote exactly right, but he, you know, he basically was reflecting on the importance of democracy. And he said that man's capacity for justice makes democracy uh, possible, and man's capacity for injustice makes democracy uh, necessary. And mm. what he was getting at there is you know, as we know, we are human beings are a, a broken lot that are capable of both great and terrible things, and mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. democracy as a form of government that acknowledges the fundamental equality and dignity of all people of all citizens uh, is both very and allows for them to mobilize and do good things together is both very sympathetical with that, but it also. Um, uh, you know, ensures that there are mechanisms for accountability or of stopping people who, as people often are inclined, who are doing bad things. And mm-hmm. so that there, that there is, a, is a real connection, I think, between uh, democ- liberal democracy as we've historically practiced it in the United States and Christianity. Now, having said all of that, I think what happened um, starting uh, in particular in this period of polarization is that especially uh, within the right of center and Republican tradition, which I frankly am more kind of tend to come out of and uh, have come out of and, and more closely affiliate with, there um, more and more um, uh, 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 Christians and Christian leaders came to be outspoken 
in aligning with a particular party and often a particular candidate, mm-hmm. uh, and presuming that the Bible gave very gives very clear instructions on particular policy issues mm. um, in ways that I think stretch you know any reasonable form of interpretation. So when 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 um, Christians come to uh, be in service or dedicated to advancing the fortunes of a particular uh, party or candidate, they are vulnerable to the corruption that is true of all of all human endeavors. Mm. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the things that we need to reckon with now. Now, having said all of that, um, the uh, the it remains the case that the um, as I mentioned earlier, the the vast majority. Of 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 Christians who are, uh, you know, full and equal citizens in our democracy, I think are, you know, are are in a position to be part of the solution, right? They mm. they believe it's important to stay informed, to look after one's neighbor, to vote, to do one's civic duty, and so I think that there are untapped, you know, there's a latent energy in in Christian churches of all faiths and races. Mm. Um, of all denominations and, and races that we need to uh, bring into the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so this isn't an attempt to kind of push uh, uh, to say that Christians should leave the public sphere. But I, another way to frame this very concretely is: so often the debate is, well, you know, uh, what what does the, the the what does Christianity entail for public policy, or which you know, uh, candidate or party uh, should a Christian support? And uh, we can go into more details. Sure. I don't think those questions are, are are that interesting because they can't be answered dispositively. I think the real question is, how should Christians mm. comport themselves in mm. politics? What, mm-hmm. How would they distinguish themselves uh, and reflect their faith in how they participate? That's the question I think we need to mm-hmm. pay a lot more attention to. And we've been overlooking. Yeah. yeah. And and I I do want to pivot to that pretty soon. I I have another question uh, because this was helpful when you and I had an earlier conversation, which was there's a perception that I have that maybe others do. If if I just flip on talk radio or you know whatever uh, news source, the perception I might have is that basically everybody's at odds with everybody. There's, you know that there's kind of, yeah. kind of like everybody's almost everybody has very strong views that are very um, firm, both firmly held and antagonistic towards the others, and there's not really middle ground. It's just two opposites kind of uh, yelling at each yep. other. Um, and you you helped me understand that it's not quite as dire, if yes. you will, as I was perceiving. Yes, and 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 there's a there's a great report by some friends of mine who work at an organization called More in Common, which their their basic thesis is we actually have a lot more in common. Than we note, and, and the way to think about it, Richard, if if you were to assemble a representative sample um, of a um, uh, hundred Americans uh, uh, in, in a in a room, um, a couple there'd be a couple of divides worth noting. One is the one you mentioned from the people who are outspoken uh, politically on the left and who would be see themselves as progressive or liberal and have fully consistent and coherent political views. And the other would be people who are outspoken on the right, uh, and 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 have uh, fully articulated conservative or libertarian views. Uh, but of those hundred people, those two camps would represent at most a third hmm. of them. Um, uh, that most people 
uh, most Americans, roughly two-thirds of the Americans, are in what Moore in Common calls the exhausted majority, <laughs> which is they might lean one way or the other, but they are not um, uh, uh, so fiercely partisan in their orientation. They are very open to kind of figuring out how to work together and finding uh, common ground, much more disposed to do that. But the key difference, the, it's not so much the divide between left and right that we often think it is, which again, there's about a third of Americans that find themselves on either side of that staunchly uh, uh, defended divide. Uh, the real divide that might be most Im- interesting for us and might be most interesting for, for pastors listening is th- th- another feature of that exhaustive majority. It's not only that they aren't especially ideological or partisan uh, uh, or consistent in their viewpoints, but but they are just not as active politically. They are mm. much less apt to to follow politics, to pay attention to people who are outspoken politically, to feel as passionate about this party or that candidate. And you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, and the most important reason is, they are busy. You know, mm-hmm. running their roofing business mm-hmm. or raising the their three kids or mm-hmm. you know homeschooling their kids or you know uh, going about the business life or being involved mm-hmm. in their church. So there's partly that's a you know that in a and we can talk a bit more about this later. But in a healthy liberal democracy, politics shouldn't be paramount. We should be focused on these mm. other family and church and community and neighborhood. Uh, those are the activities mm. that should really draw uh, the attention in a healthy and, and functioning mm. society. Mm. Um, so one is that exhaustive majority, roughly two-thirds of Americans are um, uh, uh, not, you know, they, they have other things going on in their lives. They don't have time. Politics for them is not a hobby. But secondly, there's also a certain um, uh, disenchantment or this mm-hmm. notion of exhaustion where they they hear people taking these extreme stands and criticizing people that uh, in ways that leave them that they might know and leave them feeling uncomfortable so it's almost like screw that i don't mm-hmm. want you know politics is a ugly partisan thing i don't feel like anyone's speaking for me or representing the the complex range of views that right. i might have so i'm just going to step back and i'm out yeah let people and and that is i think the real challenge with our society is that the the you know, roughly two-thirds majority for now, I mean, that this may continue to decline, that hold what we might just call um, less intense and, uh, you know, more moderate in aggregate views um, or views that are quirky and don't fall neatly in any party's uh, mm. policy agenda are checking out of politics, which only then gives more mm. voice and influence to the people who hold much more, in, you know, extreme views with more um, intensity. And, for to make this relevant for the, and it's something I saw as a as a chair of a, of a church board. Often the people that pastors hear from are the people that are the equivalent of that one third of Americans that are right. highly highly informed, highly activated, activated, and think politics is everything. And you know the the people who are right. in their congregation who are not you know who have either better things to do or don't want to be as political in their orientations. Um, you know, they are not likely to go to a pastor and say, "Oh, we should take this position or that one." And so, I think one of the one of the things that leaders of all institutions, not least churches, need to do is to make sure you're listening to the full spectrum mm. of opinion, not those who are most outspoken or or those who have the most intensely held views. That's really helpful. 
can I ask this too? I'm I'm curious as as you said is in a um, in a healthy uh, what we would describe it, like a, a healthy functioning kind of society. You said you know people aren't and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but they're not looking for their political affiliations or the or the government to sort of be the a pri- the primary focus yes. of their of their attention. And I'm wondering is 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 it true then that is is are people looking for and I, and I, Christians, non-Christians, whoever? But uh, are we looking for the government to solve things that the government wasn't meant to solve, or, or, or you know, are we are are we looking for the the state in the broad yeah. sense of that to be our our rescuer, healer, and beyond what we should be? Well, I might I might put it uh, maybe uh, I might put it somewhat differently, which I think is the case that. For more and more Americans, and I, I would say this for people, uh, you know, on the right who are explicitly and, and, and profess their religiosity um, and, and typically is Christian, uh, or people on the left who, you know, profess a secular, or, you know, that they are secular and not religious, politics has become a religion. It has become mm. an idol that mm-hmm. we are investing uh, our hopes and dreams and, and, you know, that if you... If you you know the 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 heart follows the mind, and if, if you mm-hmm. spend you know twenty four seven obsessing about politics and you know posting on social media and following news, um, uh, you are consuming a lot of political information. And mm-hmm. you know you could tell yourself, one could tell yourself, well, I'm doing that to be an informed uh, citizen, or that's right. you know, but. Um, I think a question to a really good check on that is with all of the time you are investing in politics, what are you doing concretely to make your, your, your family, your mm-hmm. neighborhood, your community, mm-hmm. your state, the things that you have more direct control over a better place, a place that yeah. better reflects the, the values of the kingdom? Because typically what it is, is people venting. And I'll, I'll use the example, like, I have irrational attachments to the sports teams of Michigan State University. <laughs> and I, I, I live or die by how Michigan State does in football and basketball. And, and I get quite passionate. And I, I get really overwrought when they are losing to our arch rivals at the University of Michigan. Sure. Which is a, you know, I could go on and on about all the, but I, but I kind of like what makes that funny, you know, in our family just looks at me like I've got a screw loose. Um, uh, is that is clearly it's a game. It's you know you know eighteen and nineteen year old you know boys and, right. boys and girls, young people yeah. kind of playing sports in ways that that you know aren't consequential. But you just get so invested in that, right. and uh, and I think you know with politics the stakes seem so much higher, mm-hmm. and in, in some respects they are. But that same kind of irrational passion that. That, mm. that you might invest in a, in a sports rivalry and have that be seen as harmless once that gets into uh, you, you know your spirit with respect to politics mm. and leads you to break relationships off with friends or family members mm. or neighbors that then you know there, there are ripple effects of that yeah. um, uh, and that's the thing that I think should concern us all. 
It should. And I think even just that with that same example, it's like I think of how often, you know, as I too, whether it's, uh, you know, I went to Arizona State, so yeah. the Sun Devils where I guess Satan's our mascot. Yeah. That's a problem, I guess. But but where you have these these sports teams yeah. or wherever that I, I literally have no influence yeah. no you know i i'm not making them better or worse by getting worked up or not is going to yeah. in no way change any kind of outcome yeah. and yet i get like you said yeah. we get that way and i think like you said it seems like we we do seem to have this um maybe we would call it an irrational focus yeah. on particularly at the national level where yes. where yes. a single individual yes. is capable yes. of really minimal influence yes. on that Yes. Is there something to that? You know, so so you've you know, one of the one of the the resets that I think we all should go through, and, and there's a lot of of, of uh, social psychology and moral psychology that's bearing this out, is that we generally think our political views are rational, that we hmm. we think through the issues and reach a conclusion about which party or program or candidate has the best set of positions, and then support them. And, and there's, a, there's a terrific book written by uh, a gentleman named uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, called The mm. Righteous Mind, and the subtitle mm. is Why Liberals and Conservatives Disagree About Politics. And it, it, it encapsulates uh, some findings that are replicated across you know, cultures and countries that, um, in fact, about, and he likens the, uh, the, the, the balance between our reasonable, rational mind and our uh, kind of autonomous, subrational, unconscious mind uh, when it comes to politics uh, is roughly equivalent to uh, a, a rider and an elephant barreling through the jungle, right? So mm. the, 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 and with the vast majority of the energy and the momentum and the response being driven not by the, the, the rider who's kind of hanging on as this elephant <laughs> is galloping through the underbrush, but to the elephant, which is this mm. kind of primordial, passionate uh, you know, source of responses. And the point is that you know, our political viewpoints and dispositions and differences are much less uh, a subject of rational and consistent mm. belief and much more part and parcel of who we are as people. And one of the things that he highlights, um, and it's, it's a wonderful, it's a very accessible book, um, uh, that, you know, you know, around the world, there's a handful of what he calls, um, uh, I think the phrase is moral sentiments or hmm. orientations or moral foundations. And these would include things like, you know, uh, and, and, and just as we have different, you know, the human uh, beings have the capacity for a few different taste sensations of sweet, sour, mm -hmm. salty, hmm. Um, uh, uh, bitter, um, um, that we have these different moral foundations, which include things like generally uh, prevention of harm to others, a sense of fairness, a mm -hmm. respect for authority, uh, the sanctity or purity of things, and loyalty to the group. Mm. And just as like you know, we had coffee as we come in. If 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 I happen to put cream and sugar in my coffee and thus suggest I have a certain sweet tooth, and you drink your coffee black and suggests that you have more of a taste for, for bitterness, um, we wouldn't draw any moral conclusions from that. We'd just say we'd like our coffee different, right? Mm -hmm. And I think well, the irony is that the more we learn about what prompts political orientations, the more we realize it's a function of these underlying uh, dispositions, which are mm. you know kind of part of a... You know, th there's definitely a cultural and environmental reinforcement for them, but there are, there are dispositions... Um, 
that you know one is imprinted with very early on that um, kind of lead people to assume certain positions. So once you accept that, you realize, wow, we're arguing over stuff that it's not so much rational, but just a reflection mm. of these different dispositions. Then you can, um, and 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 so practically speaking, people who uh, would be more apt to support liberal or progressive causes tend to have a package of moral foundations which really emphasize the prevention of harm to others mm. um, and fairness and you know kind of freedom um, mm. uh, of of uh, as dispositions. Whereas people who like me might be more smaller C conservative. You know, it's not like they don't have those dispositions, but will have in stronger measure uh, a sense of, of, of deference to authority and obedience, of loyalty to the group, mm. of sanctity. Mm-hmm. And so those, so it, it really, I think, opens up for us vistas of, oh, maybe, maybe this is less about rational disagreement and more mm. about we just have different types of dispositions we're bringing to the yeah. public sphere. seems like part of what would be a, a at least a more helpful way forward would be to acknowledge that it, it seems like we're in this place where it, you said this earlier it seems like there's more and more there's this assumption or a uh, a belief that those who hold a view that is on the other side so to speak of mine to attribute something more sinister or, or even yeah. evil about either them or their views yes. and um that seems like a kind of a no-win situation when we start to just go, well, you're not just wrong, you're bad. Yes. Um, how can we yes. even begin to unwind and unspool yes. some of that? Well, so this is where I think we get into the, the practical challenges that many pastors are facing and, and, um, and many churches are facing, which is, they're, 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 you know, and going back to what I was saying earlier, we need to shift the focus from, you know, what do my beliefs as a Christian prescribe for public policy mm-hmm. or which candidate or party mm-hmm. should I support? So to the more foundational question of how should I as a Christian or how should we as Christians look at politics, participate in politics in ways that reflect the best traditions of our faith and, yeah. this is a key point, enable this form of government, liberal democracy, which going back to Reinhold Niebuhr is uniquely matched up with hmm. Christian views on human nature and human possibility and human uh, uh, challenges to support this system. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the, you know, I think one starting point is um, for pastors, especially of, of, of politically mixed congregations, hmm. to see politics as not something to be avoided, hmm. uh, but rather to focus on the, you know, help their congregations and and also for lay leaders and for Christians, you know, mm-hmm. kind of in the pews to help their co-religionists mm-hmm. kind of understand more clearly the how of politics in yeah. ways that are uh, conducive to Christianity. Now, I think what we, you know, I think what you generally see, there's there's definitely a tradition in, and I have a number of friends in more traditional um, uh, uh, even white evangelical churches, predominantly white evangelical churches in the American South, I think for the longest time, by dint of for them so long being excluded and now kind of them being sources of these churches being sources of power. African-Americans have this great tradition of getting souls to the polls and mm-hmm. kind of really uh, helping helping people see 
from a prophetic viewpoint, the importance of, of being active and engaged citizens. So you have mm-hmm. a couple types of churches that, you know, uh, are, you know, are uh, leaning into the, the, the political mix. But I think sure. it's ch- much trickier for uh, uh, churches where you have people in the congregations who might represent different political dispositions. Mm-hmm. And even you know we're we're talking in in Silicon Valley now, and you know uh, as I always point out to my 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 friends and family in Michigan, uh, even though California is generally a blue state, um, uh, you know Donald Trump had more voters in California than any other state in the union. Hmm. So any part of the country you go to, you're gonna in in many instances have a uh, a political mixture of people and thus politically mixed congregations. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, it's in those mixed congregations where I think a extended reflection on how should we right. how should we participate in politics and interact with each other as fellow believers and fellow yes. members of this church that's really where the work uh, needs to start absolutely and I think as I uh, talk to different pastors and faith leaders in the Bay Area in particular that's mm-hmm. our primary target audience here is that that does represent a lot of our churches whether it's a whether my church uh, or your church is mostly this or mostly that, I think, in my view, just personally, I would say a healthy church, a healthy congregation, would have uh, a divergence, a, a mixture of views that we wouldn't be monolithic in yeah. that way. And so, um, and so, let us let's pivot to that. So it's less about telling people necessarily how to vote or what policies in particular yeah. to su- or candidates in particular yeah. to support. But really more, how do we conduct ourselves, if you will, as citizens? And I think the scripture would say we're, we're dual citizens. We're mm-hmm. citizens of the kingdom of God. We're citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippians. And yet we're also citizens of this, of this country, um, of this democracy. And so, so it is important that we conduct ourselves, if you will, as uh, responsible, healthy, a- engaged citizens in uh, both of those Kingdoms, sure, if sure. You will. Yeah. sure. Well, you mentioned Paul, and I think one of the you know there's a there's a couple of points that he made at different junctures. One, you know, that are worth bearing in mind. So the first thing I would say is to acknowledge, as he pointed out, that in this broken world we see through a glass darkly, mm. and we have very jumbled impressions that that mm. is part and part of our faith tradition. It is definitely true with respect to politics. Uh, as any other endeavor, maybe even more so given the human passions and self-interest that politics pulls out of us. So to begin with the presumption is that I don't really have and we don't really have a great feel for what is happening in our political mm. uh, realm um, and to acknowledge that that you know my judgments of, of my political opponents are likely colored and skewed by my own irrational mm. uh, disposition. So you know I'll just give you some examples. you know survey researchers um, uh, you know polled um, uh, you know it, it turns out that you know this wouldn't be surprising a lot of what we've been talking about, but the othering that occurs in politics is based on profound misimpressions of mm. the other side. So, Pollsters will survey, you know, kind of people and say, well, for people in the other party, what percent of them are this or that or the other thing? So there's some really good data um, where, uh, you know, Republicans were asked, well, how many, what, on general, what's the proportion of Democrats who w- would openly identify as uh, LGBTQ okay. uh, in their orientation? And Republicans say, oh, it's, you know, like, 
I think the data was like 38% is, you know, clearly, so almost nearly the bulk of uh, Democrats. Well, you know, in the same survey that were when Democrats were responding, people who identified as Democrats, uh, about 6% said they would, I would, would. So, and and again, that's not necessarily the, but those numbers are instructive. And conversely, when Democrats would say, well, how many Republicans earn more than $250,000 a year? Oh, the vast, we you know, it's like 44% of Republicans. Well, it turns out that 2% of Republicans. <laughs> are so we have these profoundly different wow. impressions. And what's really interesting and scary is that the more educated you are, the more likely you are to have a misimpression wow. of the other side. So it's not like, oh, if people are smarter or more educated. Right. I don't, I don't, I want to be clear, I'm not equating being smart and being better educated. But in fact, the more educated you are, the better you are to fool yourself into describing the set of people that you see as your political enemy. So I'm just mentioning that yeah. as a way of saying, well, a starting point is to say when it comes to politics, um, the member of Congress that I used to work for at one point told me, uh, you know, I was helping him with a, he represented a district in Texas and I was helping him with uh, some visits to his constituencies and, and, you know, at one point he got back in the in the car for we were going from one event to another, and he had had to say some things in that meeting which he didn't really believe, but he also was trying to respond. And he said, "Sooner or later, politics makes fools of us all." Now he didn't use the word fools, but his point was, <laughs> this is a human endeavor, and it kind of bring, can bring out the the best and the worst in us. And mm. just to acknowledge that, and we we see it imperfectly. So wow, I think that I, one of the words that strikes me with that then, Daniel, is uh, for ourselves in particular, yeah. and that we can. Uh, as faith leaders, uh, it's a character quality of, of, of honestly just humility. Yes, humility to be able to say I I may not know as much as I think I know, and my perceptions of even what things I think I know, uh, particularly around matters of of, uh, of politics in this season, yeah. may be wrong. Yes. I might be wrong. Yes, and yeah. boy, if we could just even entertain that possibility. Yes, uh, it seems like that would be a helpful start. Yes, I think that's a very helpful. Uh, very helpful start, and then I think related to it, and we I, I wrote a piece a, a, a year or so ago, which fleshed out a, a, a way of thinking about ethical partisanship, right? Mm. So, you know, there's a school of thought, and a, and a, and a friend of mine, David French, is, uh, who's, who's a wonderful commentator on these issues, mm. uh, has said, well, uh, Christians, you know, should embrace the virtues of being politically homeless that, that mm. we don't, there's no one party where we can be completely at home. And so we should abstain from partisanship. And, and, you know, I, I agree with David on like 98% of what, what he, what he shares. And I think he's a wonderful witness in the public arena. I, I disagree with him on this point for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we've talked about democracy being essential to really set the stage for a flourishing Christianity and political parties are essential to hmm. democracy. Hmm. And if you think about it, you know, democracy is a form of government. When you have a group of free and equal citizens who see the world differently, what's a moral or ethical way to figure out what we should do? Well, at the end of the day, you've got to kind of take a vote amongst those hmm. free and equal citizens. Hmm. And political parties are how you get to a majority to, to govern, hmm. right? And hmm. so once you accept... Uh, political parties as part and parcel of democracy and as that is providing a important set of guardrails for Christianity, both on the positive and the negative side, I think it then behooves us to say, well, how should Christians participate Mm -hmm. in in political parties? And I Mm. think there is a need for a, um, uh, in effect, an ethical framework for, for partisanship. And 
you know, we can share a link to a, a piece where I, I tried to talk about some great work that a couple of political scientists, Russ Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum, have done thinking about what mm. makes partisanship ethical. And there's actually mm. a few things uh, about it. So one thing is to be uh, inclusive, right? So that mm. if, if you are ethical partisanship is ensuring that all eligible citizens can participate and vote and be heard, right? You're acknowledging mm. the equality mm-hmm. of all citizens to have an equal voice mm. uh, in the democracy. I think it's also, you know, for partisanship to be ethical, it also needs to be, they talk about it being comprehensive. That is, you know, the the, 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 the parties need to offer a vision for the country uh, as a whole and for all groups mm-hmm. within it. They can't say, well, we're just... Now, invariably, parties will have a better feel for how to support a subset of groups or regions or interests than others. But if they if they are intentionally building into their party agenda othering of certain groups that need to be included, hmm. then you can say, okay, this isn't this isn't uh, necessarily an ethical form of partisanship. The mm-hmm. the fi- you know another key component of ethical partisanship is a commitment to. Uh, the basic provisions of constitutional democracy, which is you have votes, you count the votes, and then uh, the party that has the most gets to govern for the time being, and the party and the candidate that didn't uh, dust themselves off and try harder in the next election. Uh, there's a mm. uh, political scientist, Adam Jaworski, who's pointed out that you know if you distill it down to its essence, um, a democracy is a system in which parties and candidates lose elections, right? So it's not <laughs> simply that you have elections, but the people who come out on the short end of the one say, okay, yeah, I lost, the other side can govern. So those are kind of mm. the elements of, mm. a, of, a, of, a, of an ethical partisanship that mm. I think um, you know, could serve as the basis for discussions within, mm. uh, within churches as to the how of participation. I think there's, mm. a, there's another... Um, uh, you know, aspect of this that ties back into the psychology, which is um, focus less on um, trying to persuade hmm. uh, the people who disagree with you that they're wrong and you're right, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, and, and so whether it's within a church or across parties, but focus instead on uh, trying to understand why they mm. happen to hold the views that they mm. do. And mm-hmm. so in the spirit of inquiry versus advocacy. Mm. And there's a terrific group called Braver Angels, which it's not um, uh, religious per se, although they do a lot of work and have a lot of people from religious institutions involved. But you know, their point is, um, you know, it's really hard for adults to suddenly say, oh, you, you persuaded me. Uh, I was wrong, mm-hmm. you were right, I'm gonna change not just my views on a particular issue, but which candidate or party I think I should vote for. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a paradoxical thing that happens when human beings approach other human beings in a spirit of inquiry. If I start asking you, oh, that's interesting, you're voting for this candidate or party, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have, have wouldn't have thought for myself that's what I would do. Tell me more about what you find, mm-hmm. uh, why why they're drawing your mm-hmm. interest. And, and to ask that, you know, what truly is an open question versus how could you possibly vote for this guy, <laughs> which is what we're inclined to do. But say, gosh, that's interesting. Say more about what you find compelling about their agenda. Hmm. And that paradoxically, by by approaching someone in the spirit of inquiry, you know, they tend to let their guard down, speak more freely. You tend to have a better feel for what's really motivating mm-hmm. and prompting them, which is probably something that is less dire and less... 
um, uh, unpleasant than you might be projecting onto them. And then paradoxically, you know, they will ask you, well, gosh, mm. tell me. So it sounds like you, you're supporting someone someone else. Say more about why. So it, mm. it provides for a uh, uh, mechanisms for rapprochement. And what's more, it enables us to acknowledge and appreciate our differences and then to recognize, gosh, even though we might be supporting different people or different parties, we all agree on much more than we disagree. So let's mm-hmm. focus on what we have in common mm-hmm. as places where we can dig in. Yeah, that's so good. Again, strikes me of humility. It also strikes yeah. me of, uh, what was it, Stephen Covey many years yes. ago, seek first to understand yes. before being understood or yes. even just be curious. Yes. Be curious. And uh, uh, what a great way to begin as opposed to uh, being so uh, so concern with getting my thought my view m- you know myself out there but let me understand and but genuinely not like and it's as like like you said very different ways of asking that question huh that's interesting I'm, i want to hear more tell me more as opposed to i'm asking a question with a how could you possibly right yes, you know yes, kind yes. of a view that's great and and there's there so i mentioned braver angels there's a terrific group that uh, led by andy hanauer called the one america movement that is now explicitly and intentionally working with um, uh, religious leaders, uh, including um, uh, Christian and evangelical churches, on you know, structuring uh, and, and setting up dialogues within their congregations for how to host and, 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 and have these discussions in ways that reduce the temperature hmm. you know, as a first step, which is an important part of mm-hmm. the discussion, to draw on those shared feelings of fellowship or mm. membership within an institution. Whereas I think often the temptation is, you know, I shouldn't say anything. And because if I do, all I'll do is enrage one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you, and obviously, you know, churches can't, you know, be in the business of endorsing particular candidates or parties. And what I'm suggesting is we need to start having much more directly and openly a conversation about how we can participate. Yeah that reflect yeah. the values that we hold in common. That's great. I mean, and, and in fact, so so for a pastor or faith leader that's that's listening to this, that, that perhaps as opposed to just, I'm just going to avoid the subject altogether because it's going to you know, just anger and, and divide people, um, rather than saying, you know, getting into policy or candidate kinds of t- discussion, more about just how do we even engage uh, what would you say to someone who says, "Well, maybe we just shouldn't engage. Maybe just because it's, the whole thing is so is so uh, full of rancor and and messed up anyway, and and corruption is everywhere. So let's just stay out of it altogether, and we'll just we'll just focus on to use a, an out, an older saying: we'll we'll save souls yes. and we'll yes. uh, we'll just help people's spiritual lives, and we'll just stay and we'll yes. just leave it at that." So, I think for uh, more and more. Uh, religious institutions, and it pains me to say this, I'm not sure that stance is tenable, right? Mm-hmm. And so at this at this retreat I mentioned at the outset, I was just struck in talking with pastors mm-hmm. by how many, and, th- and this this is a relatively recent development. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've spent you know several years now, uh, you know, in, in dialogue at different junctures with pastors in the Bay Area. and the the intensity that they were experiencing this, phenomena within their congregations, the extent to which it was weighing on their minds and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, leaving them uh, you know, uh, saddened and disillusioned. It, it's a real 
problem. And mm-hmm. you know, the the to to paraphrase uh, Leon Trotsky, you know, religious leaders and lay leaders may not be interested in polarization and partisanship, but polarization and partisanship are interested in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if this is leading people to you know um, people in the pews to uh, make an idol out of mm-hmm. something that is part of life but shouldn't be the central part mm-hmm. if it is leading them to disrupt or break off human connections that they need to be nurturing and developing um, people need guidance on mm-hmm. this and if they aren't getting it from uh, the you know and if they're not getting it from their religious leaders or people in their religious community uh, they're going to be getting it from Fox News and MSNBC and other other places that don't, aren't bringing those same values and perspectives to bear, and it's going to compound. It's not going to. It's not going to lessen. It's going to intensify. I've, I've heard it said in different ways. You know, if if people are engaging with the church, let's say the, uh, an hour on Sunday, assuming yeah. that an hour on Sunday and whatever they might be doing for any personal spiritual practices or disciplines but the reality is they're in taking in some form of uh, political commentary whatever whatever channel or station or whatever input that looks like um you know 10 hours uh 20 hours or plus a week i mean one of those things is more likely to it seems like to be influencing yes. their thinking right yes. yeah. i mean would you would you encourage you know even uh pastors or faith leaders to to even speak to even the the quantity of yes. content people are consuming yes yeah. yes so it's a really good question and here uh you know I, I guess i would put that question back to you this will be an area with your experience you'll know more but if it's the case that people have made an idol out of politics and in particular the rightness uh, and justice of their side in politics to the point where it's sundering other relationships and absorbing mm-hmm. more, you know, more and more of their time. Um, that strikes me as something that would be in scope mm-hmm. for uh, a church to talk through and to mm-hmm. discuss mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that, you know, here in Silicon Valley, I think an issue that a lot of uh, congregations deal with is a really strongly performative culture, mm-hmm. whether it's, parents at work and feeling like they are only successful insofar as they're making money or succeeding at work or kids in school mm-hmm. uh, and they're only successful if they are performing well in school or getting into perceived univer- universities that are you know that that is a road to bleakness and despair and mm-hmm. I think politics is no different than that mm-hmm. so I think it, it you know it's essential for for those leaders and and so you know, we would say to people, you know, if you are working so that you're never home for um, uh, dinner with your family, that's too much. Work mm. is good in its place, but if it becomes everything that you're doing, it isn't an idol. And I think we should say to people, if you're, you know, if you are consuming political information, um, you know, all the time uh, in ways that are leading you to be angry or frustrated or to sunder relationships that should be that's a warning sign that something is out of balance that you have a disordered attachment to yeah. to uh, and and alum of soul care will recognize the salience of that term to mm. not just a p- 
politics as a field of endeavor, but to the rightness of your cause and the right. perfidy of the other side. I think there's a little bit of, of uh, jujitsu, if you will, uh, mm. that, that pastors could do here, which is rather than framing this of don't do this, um, uh, offer opportunities for more constructive forms of engagement. So mm. we've talked about how politics has become almost like a, a hobby in the way that for me, mm-hmm. following Big Ten sports is a hobby. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's happened over time that has furthered the polarization is really the nationalization and the virtualization mm-hmm. of our political discussion. I know many churches are looking for ways to engage their congregations in the in their neighborhoods and communities mm. in ways that are winsome and ways that are are engaging a, a, a more diverse array of people and bringing the good mm. news to them and listening and learning from their communities and and you know you know if you can start to have, say people maybe we spend a little less time watching the vitriol on cable news or sharing and reposting things on um, on Facebook and mm-hmm. spend more time let's kind of get together and figure out how we can help this institution down the street, which is yeah. doing some good things, and, and maybe we can learn from them, or how we can can help a neighboring school that might be challenged. or a, Absolutely. That, you know, kind of get people you know, to, to kind of integrate it into the, integrate this impulse, which is to be involved in things beyond their immediate household, which is not a bad impulse, but channel that into productive and fruitful ends, which are yeah. much more apt, I'm suggesting, to be found in one's, uh, neighborhood and community than, you know, on the national stage. That's a absolutely a great, great counsel. And I think of, and, and the same reality that we spoke to earlier, the, the, the reality is we're much more likely to be able to make an actual impact or difference at a local level anyway. Uh, I think of the church uh, in Arizona that we uh, helped to, to start. One of the things we first went in a home and then we were meeting in a synagogue and then we met uh, uh, we're meeting at a reception center, and then someone in the church, because our, our emphasis as a church was how can we serve and, and be good news to the community around us. And so someone in our church just Googled, what's the poorest school in our community? Yeah. And so we just reached out to that school and said, how can we serve you? What do you need? Yeah. How can yeah. we help? And, and then we kept doing that, and eventually they actually invited us to start having our services on Sundays, and we still paid rent and everything, but met there. And so I think, but we got to see, you know, over time, uh, it, a, a difference and engaged us differently with people that were different than us, mm-hmm. which was another good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been talking about hows. So how mm-hmm. can we help people to engage? Is, are there any other kind of the hows that come to mind of ways that we can help our people, help ourselves to, to more constructively and helpfully uh, talk about and engage people? Uh, you know, political things. Yes. So I think there is a, there's, there's a couple of things, and just in the spirit of brainstorming here, one is, uh, you know, turn inward to, uh, into our tradition, into resources um, uh, within the Christian tradition to ground this versus turning to external hmm. resources. And hmm. what I mean by that is, um, you know, uh, the there are ample resources within the Christian tradition to help think through how should we comport ourselves in politics versus turning to partisans or people mm. outside the tradition. And mm. you know, if we think about how to think about 
you know, avoiding othering and 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 mm-hmm. being a good neighbor. Um, uh, let's let's look at the story of the Good Samaritan and mm. have discussions and reflections about that. So I, mm. I think one thing would be um, for the, the, the that there aren't problems with the with with our tradition that can't be illuminated and repaired by other resources from within mm. our tradition. That's, mm. that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I often see, and I, I think I've seen this in particular on issues related to the important work that needs to be done on, on racial justice and rec- reconciliation with the church is, you know, importing, uh, you know, secular resources that often have a political valence that are not explicitly religious or Christian mm-hmm. as a way of trying to push or force certain discussions within the church when it would be, I think people would be much more apt to let down their guard and to reflect mm. more by drawing on resources and stories and parables and examples mm. from within our tradition. Mm. And related to this, um, I think it behooves us to um, be focused on the um, the plank in our own eyes as mm. a as, uh, uh, Christian believers and leaders of churches uh, than the moat in mm. our opponent's eyes, so mm. that there's often a, a lot of vitriol expended, uh, you know, from people who you know are are claiming the mantle of Christian leadership against uh, secular um, uh, 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 leaders or, or factors in politics. And I'm not saying that you know you have to agree with everything that. Uh, uh, people are saying, but I think really it behooves us when we see our co-religionists saying or doing things that are beyond the pale of our mm. tradition um, uh, to to say, to call out, that is not what we believe. And I'll, I'll give you a mm. great example. There's mm. a, uh, a wonderful um, uh, a leader named Michael Ware who has just founded a, something called the, the Center for Christianity um, in Public Life. Um, uh, and he's Michael was the directed the um, uh, or was involved with the uh, Obama administration in directing the um, uh, Office of Faith Based Initiatives in the okay. White House and worked in that office and you know it was a really interesting he's an, you know evangelical Christian an incredibly gifted and compelling uh, witness for the gospel and you know and as you know identifies as someone who came into politics through the democratic lane is 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 sees himself as a democrat talking you know, he routinely talks about the the third of democrats that are pro life in their orientation which hmm. again is not something so he's he's someone who is saying you know I happen to find myself in this particular party but I'm going to be working broadly to advance the kingdom and hmm. and and a couple of weeks ago I don't know if you saw uh, when when former president Trump was uh, doing a rally in Michigan and a pastor in opening the prayer for the meeting, said you know you know and you know in you know invoked uh, you know the restoration of President Trump and the you know overturning of the 2020 election is something that he was wishing God would bring to bear and to you know basically wrapping the agenda of a particular politician who has made a series of claims that really reject those principles of ethical partnership partisanship that I mentioned. And suggesting that this is what Christians believe, and someone had sent him this and saying, "Well, is this what you believe?" And he said, "You know, what he said was, um, you know, I, this doesn't trouble me as a Christian because this, frankly, is is not Christian. This is not the tradition that 
we're a part of. But but that mm. the fact that Michael within that tr- is making that critique within that tradition, it's much more powerful to kind of get our heads around. Mm. Okay, where is there misbehavior occurring? My my basic point is mm. that you know I think it, it is it behooves us as believers to notice when people are. Uh, making an idol of their faith or making statements that that uh, you know purport to reflect what Christians should do or should believe in politics in ways that are really usurping what is uh, you know something mm. that ultimately is for God to determine not not for us and mm. that's so we have a role to play in kind of policing what's happening within our own ranks more than yeah. you know and that isn't to say that we can't critique uh, people outside of our tradition or disagree with them but but we ha- there's a special onus on us yes. to to, uh, to challenge what we see as abuses or misappropriations of of uh, God's vision uh, and putting that into the mouths of particular politicians. That's so helpful, and I think that is that's a, that is a very concrete and tangible way that I think faith leaders can uh, can speak about uh, these kinds of things with uh, both from the pulpit, if you will, and, as well as you know in in information in 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 their own lives and in their leadership and others is is one is like you says can we look in the mirror at the ways in which we're talking about people that think differently than us are we speaking in ways that are uh demeaning dismissive uh are we or are we speaking with kindness and respect can we tell on ourselves Mm -hmm. like you said can we can we acknowledge that we as those who claim the name of jesus have have we acted in ways that would be described as mm-hmm. loving and mm-hmm. kind and gracious? Um, is that as as the way of Jesus been reflected in us? And to the degree that it is it, it hasn't, can we name that? Mm-hmm. So it just seems like there's so the ways in which we uh, we speak to others, encounter, engage with others, and engage these these conversations matters uh, a great deal in terms of even our credibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, any other, uh, as we kind of get ready to probably wind down our conversation? Well, I, I just, I'm so grateful, Richard, for the chance to uh, to reflect and think out loud with you. And, 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 and I'll, I'll, we'll assemble some resources yeah. that people can turn to in the links. I think in particular the resources from uh, the One America movement uh, could be helpful because they're intentionally geared for, for, for uh, pastors and church leaders in this area. And I, I just... Uh, appreciate the the challenges that pastors and ministers are facing as they navigate uh, these difficulties, mm. and 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 you know, at any point in time, we have to be uh, tending to those parts of our society that are are sick and furthest removed for the kingdom. And I think one of the the there's many different problems that call out our for our attention now, and it's the the need for more racial justice and racial racial reconciliation. It's a need for, you know, we live in a country, the wealthiest country in the world, where, you know, one out of five kids, you know, doesn't have access to enough food. And mm. so there's all sorts of problems. I think in some ways, uh, the as even as we're attending to those problems, we need to recognize that this problem of our of polarization and partisanship uh we need to work on that too because that's ultimately going to enable us to make some progress as a political community on these other fronts and so mm. it's 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 something that needs tending and and hopefully some of this context and and these ideas will be helpful for people and i you know i'm i'm always happy to be of service if if people have further questions and would like to talk more about it 
Well, we are definitely going to be linking in our notes to this yeah. this episode or episodes uh, to to several to both your article, which I found extremely helpful yeah. and instructive, and um, and some of the other resources you've mentioned. And it just strikes me too at a maybe a kind of a summary uh, kind of statement is I don't, I think it's probably been attributed to various people, but I've heard it attributed to Gandhi and others. But is this simple statement is to be the change mm-hmm. we wish to see in the world. And so much of our day is, is, is a, it seems to be, or the parts that we di- dis- get discouraged about of this conversation are when we're yelling at what other people we wish they would do or not do. And, but boy, the, Jesus seemed to be saying, just like you said, if we pay attention to the speck in our own eye, if we give our attention to, to, to being the good Samaritan, the good neighbor, loving God and others with heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we are leaning into being the change we wish to see in the world, it seems like more than likely our influence in the ways that God would have it will would, it would expand and would be impa- impactful. And the more we give our uh, attention to just what is wrong, and certainly there's a place for lament and grief over that, but... But the, 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 if we can dial down, if you will, the rhetoric and vitriol, uh, even within our own hearts, then God, I think, has much more space to work. In that. Amen to that. All right. Thank you so much, so much for this conversation. So helpful. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation. If you found it helpful, feel free to share this podcast with others and subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you found us, and give us a rating. We'd really appreciate that as well. Again, if we can serve you as part of Wellspring, we are here to serve the church, both as leaders and people in whatever ways we can. So go to wellspringca.org to see what resources we have to offer and how you can be served by them. Go to our Facebook page, just search Wellspring on Facebook and you'll see lots of resources there as well. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, grace and peace.